Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. I actually had a really nice moment where a woman said to me, you're the first time I've laughed in five years since my son died and he was five and she was crying. That was really proud. That was, that's years ago. That's like 20 years ago and I still remember it. So it must've been pretty big to me. So those are the kind of things. It's never about money or power or anything. Like I was nominated for a Grammy twice. The only reason I care is because I took my niece and nephew this year and we dressed, we had the tailor make us outfits from my dad's suits and we all looked so cute and like, so we sort of had my dad with me. Those are the things I like. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I'm so excited. We're here with Lisa Lampanelli. And as always, I'm going to give her the introduction that she deserves. So get some popcorn, sit back, take some no-dos, and here goes. If Don Rickles were a woman with a slight weight problem and a well-documented fondness for having sex with African-American men, he'd sound an awful lot like comedian Lisa Lampadelli, described as comedy's lovable queen of mean. Born in Trumbull, Connecticut in 1961 to a middle-class Italian family after attending Roman Catholic schools, Lampanelli studied journalism at Syracuse University and Harvard and briefly enjoyed a successful career in the magazine industry, working as a copy editor at Popular Mechanics as fact-checker and first chief researcher for Spy Magazine, and was a contributor for Hit Parader and Rolling Stone. Deciding journalism was not for her, she quit and became a party DJ in 1990, finding that she enjoyed entertaining party-goers via the microphone. And following a trip to a comedy club, she took a course in improvisation. This led to her first successful stand-up performances in New York City in the early 1990s. Lampanelli's real rise to fame began in 2001, where she made a standout appearance on Comedy Central's Friars Club Roast, and she was invited back in 2002 
as the only female comedian invited to roast Chevy Chase at the New York Friars Club roast, which would air on Comedy Central. After that exposure, Lampanelli soon became one of the few white comedians to perform on BT's Comic View and became a regular guest on Howard Stern's radio show. Lampanelli's first cable stand-up special, The Queen of Mean, aired in 2002, and her first album, Take It Like a Man, tied into another cable special, appeared in 2005 and peaked at number six on the comedy charts. In 2006, Lampanelli made her movie debut alongside fellow comic Larry the Cable Guy in his picture, Larry the Cable Guy Health Inspector, and issued her second album, Dirty Girl, in early 2007 with a simultaneous release of a concert DVD featuring the same material, Dirty Girl reached number four on the charts and was nominated for a Grammy Award for 2007's Best Comedy Album of the Year. Also that year, Maxim Magazine named her Bachelorette of the Year. In 2008, she served as roast master for the Larry the Cable Guy roast and also performed at Carnegie Hall. She published her first book, a memoir, Chocolate, Please, My Adventures in Food, Fat, and Freaks. In 2009, Lampanelli's other comedy albums, including Long Live the Queen in 2009, with Tough Love following in 2011, and in 2016, was again nominated for a Grammy Award, her second for her album, Back to the Drawing Board. She was a contestant on Celebrity Apprentice 5 with Donald Trump, where she raised $130,000. Please welcome my guest today. It's an honor. So excited to have her here with me. Please welcome Lisa Lampanelli. Hey, Barry. <laughs> Since your show that you have here at the WP Theater, a lot of it's about body image. Yeah. I was speaking to somebody, and they said they went out with a guy who was in a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself... Out of all the sexes that you see with the disabled person in a relationship, mm -hmm. I'd say 99% you see a woman with a man in a wheelchair. 100%. And you rarely will ever see a man with a woman in a wheelchair. That's right. Unless it's like an old couple. Yeah. Why is it that women are so accepting of men, no matter what they look like, right. and men can't seem to get past... Well, here's the two things, and these are two gross generalizations, but I think they're true for me. I, first of all, always dated people I knew I could get. And I think a lot of women who suffer from low self-esteem go, I can get that fat guy. I can get that guy without a job. I can get that, and I can caretake him into loving me. So while I was very lucky with a Frank D'Amico, with another comic, Mike Irwin. Another guy who was very heavy. Yep, and what's funny is he had three kids from a different marriage and stuff. I always was like, I was in love with them, but it probably, something inside said, I can't get the hot, good-looking guy. Let me see who I could get. They ended up, thank God, they were good guys, but they weren't what men or women would look at as the cream of the crop, but they were great people. I think a lot of times women, if you're brought up, you don't have a lot of self-esteem, you get what you can get, and you make it work, but also that caretaker element, that's why I think it's rarer to see a guy pushing a broad around in a wheelchair because women are born caretakers. Like even now I'm a total caretaker. Like I love, I have a disabled friend. I love to take care of her. My mother's 87. I, I, I have game night for her every week with seven friends. I drive to Connecticut to do that. I take her for a nail. I'm a born caretaker like everybody, every other woman I know. And I think men just don't have that in them for the most part, which is fine. It's just, just a difference between the sexes. And again, it is a generalization. 
And uh, I just always think I dated guys beneath me, to be honest with you, because of low self-esteem, which is why now I don't date anymore because I want to work on myself enough to never do that again. You don't date anymore? Not at all. No, I got divorced when I was uh, two years ago, got divorced. Now, how long were you married to that? Uh, three and a half years, but thank God, most amical divorce. In, in fact, uh, he and his new wife came to see my show last night and love it. We're very good friends. Still me and Jimmy. When did you know it wasn't going to work anymore? Um, about a year before we got married. A year before you got married? Yeah, what happened was, we talk about it now, I really felt at the time, I think, that I needed someone who made me feel protected, safe, because he was a big guy, very masculine, tough, a guy to go through this weight loss journey with because we both got the weight loss surgery and lost 100 pounds. And um, I think he made me just feel like, okay, I'm, I'm, I don't need to be alone. And now that I'm so comfortable being alone, I go, let me work on me. And if I ever want to date again, it's going to be someone who's my spiritual equal, someone who's a soulmate opposed to kind of just a friend. So I got very lucky because, you know, Jimmy's the type too. He'll tell you right now, we, we love each other. He signed a pr the prenup with me without even reading it. That's how much he was into the making this work. So when we got divorced, it was like no issue. I mean, I've really dodged a lot of bullets when it came to men. I've dated bad ones and but the ones i've got really involved with have been really good-hearted guys have you ever gone out with somebody who you felt was an equal an equal or you know how uh, there's a joke somebody will go up to somebody and say hey this was not a lateral move for you yeah my high school first boyfriend in high school paul adams who now lives we are we're actually engaged he went to cornell he's an engineer he's married i guess since college with um lovely kids wife um probably was the only equal that i ever dated and then i think uh, really we spell it out in my play a lot when i went away to college just the rug was pulled out from under me i was alone and i was scared and i was ripped out of this like really close italian family that i honestly didn't know what to do like i literally had the worst years of my life in college so my eating started then the Weight goes on, then you start dating the wrong guys, you break up with the good boyfriend high school, you know, and then sort of just by working on myself through all these 32 years since college, I've been able to say, okay, I've got my weight under control and I'm trying to eat better. I'm trying to keep the weight off. I'm not dating until I work on myself enough to attract an equal. And I think, thank God, I feel like I'm 15 years old, you know, physically with the best mind and the best emotional state I've ever had. I'm, I'm literally the luckiest person you've ever met. I just can't believe it. I've always felt that way every moment that I've ever spent with you. Isn't it funny? And I just think now, like my, even my friends are equals now. Like I don't, again, I do have one disabled friend who's my friend for 30 years that we're just spiritual equals. Like we can talk about anything and I go, no one's in my life anymore who's crappy. I just can't believe I lucked into all this, but I didn't luck into it, obviously, but I can't believe I could work my way into it. And so since you talk about it so openly, you're in high school, you're going into college. So right before you go into college that summer, mm -hmm. when you look in the mirror after you get out of the shower mm -hmm. and you're drying off, mm -hmm. what do you see? I was really had no issue with weight and food so before college. It was when I went away, I just specifically remember... Food was my only friend. Be okay, yeah. so in high school, you liked yeah. your body. You thought yeah. I was cute. I, I mean, I don't remember ever going, I'm fat, I'm this, I'm that. I remember not loving that I had 
hips, unlike all those really stick-thin girls. But back then, stick-thin wasn't popular. They were called too skinny. Yeah. You know, when, in my day, I mean, I'm 55 now. When I was in high school, a size 10 or an 8 was considered what you were supposed to be. We didn't have zeros. Like, there was no such thing as a zero. Got it. So you go to college, and psychologically what happens is you get homesick, you feel alone. Mm -hmm. And when was the first time that you noticed that eating food was orgasmic? Well, the thing is, I don't think it's ever orgasmic. I think it's just pushing down stuff. So it's almost like you'll never get to the point where you're thrilled, or at least I didn't. But it was like you're not as miserable when you're eating as when you're not. So basically say I'm home by myself. It's not even registering that it's an emotional episode, but I'm like, I got to eat something. I'm hungry. And you're not physically hungry. And you'll just eat. And then you'll afterwards be like, oh, now I, I still feel bad, but now I've added on to it by feeling crappy about myself for eating. And it's a vicious cycle. So the depression eating and the self-hate in the mirror just adds up to one big depression. Okay, so you go through that and you go through your worst years in college. I get it. Mm -hmm. You get into stand-up and you notice that you're successful and crowds love you mm -hmm. and you're being embraced by people and other comics are embracing you. They want to work with you. They want to hang out with you. You're not lonely anymore. So then why are you still having the problem? I think it's uh, it's there's always something to eat over because everyone always has problems or drink over or anything. When you're starting to become successful and people are loving you. Well, there was never universal love for me. You know, I wouldn't be a guy who would walk into a club and everybody would love me. Other comics were very mean to me. I was super threatening to people. At the time, I didn't think I was threatening because I thought everybody was really better than me as a comic. But then my openers, my you know good friend openers would be like, don't worry that so-and-so is mean to you. They're threatened by you because you get some more love on the stage. I go, fuck you. That's not true. They're great. Like, I could look at anyone who was mean to me and go, they're so much better than me. And um, But then after a while, I go, they are threatened. So there was never this, hey, let's hang out with Lisa's thing. First of all, I'm the woman, com woman comic, 200-some pounds you don't want to fuck. Also, I'm an adult. I'm 35, 40 years old. No one wants to hang out with me and go get laid and go drink and go this. That. So I'm kind of a loner in this business. Like now, I really kind of don't have any friends who are comics other than my opener. And, you know, I'll, of course, talk to guys who I love, like Jim Florentine, Don Jameson. Those kind of guys were always so nice to me. And Norton, people like that. But, oh, these mean comics. I laugh about these mean comics all the time. I have a routine now where I go, uh... I'll do a Q&A during the show and I, somebody asks who was mean to you coming up and I said well I'll tell you who was really mean to me and you can tell me what they have in common I go Patrice O'Neill Greg Giraldo and Joan Rivers I go what do they have in common they go they're dead I go yeah you'd be mean to Lisa Lampanelli God fucking kills you <laughs> because it's so weird to me everyone was mean to me and I would go to that comedy cellar and I would just go home and cry all the time because everybody was nasty and my boyfriend at the time would be like you want me to go down there and I'd be like no I gotta handle this by myself I didn't handle it I have the thinnest skin in the world I'm a vulnerable I'm a mushy hearted person but they thought that that uh on stage Lisa was the real Lisa it's like I'm a chick I'm like a, a, a pushover don't you think it's fascinating that the person who spends the most time insulting people yes and rapid fire when one comic or two comics or ten comics shit on you. Well, we're off stage. Why aren't we all just talking and teaming? When you were at the comedy cellar table. I won't. I wouldn't. I would always sit somewhere else. I would go to the cellar. 
because I had spots every single night. And I was like, I'm not giving up my spots for these fucking retards. So I would literally take one of my openers at the time and we would sit at a different table, eat, and then I'd go do my set and leave. Which is the advice for everybody I give is get in, get, get out. out. I would bring a book. Mark Marin, I remember, would bring a book. And I, I, at the time when I did his podcast, I goofed on him about the book. And I was like, that is the greatest idea ever. Bring a book. But yeah, I was never a sparrer. I don't like it. It's uncomfortable. I always was like, we do this on stage. Why can't we come off and just be nice? For the most part, we're all just dented cans. Like Alan Zweibel told me that early on. He was like, people just, we all have dents. We don't want to give anybody botulism. We just got to try to push out our dents. And it's true. I mean, Patrice, God bless him. Greg Geraldo, God bless him. Joan Rivers, God bless him. They everyone's a dented can. I'm sure I was mean to people, not comics, but I'm sure I was mean to people like at hotels or on the street or something throughout my life. I'm sure I yelled way too much at people. We just try to get better every year. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my blueprint for success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. All right, let's go way, 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 way back. Yes. In the Sherman and Peabody machine. Yes. Take me back to where you grew up. Your family dynamic. You know, we grew up very middle class, normal. Um, we're Italian, growing up in Fairfield, Connecticut. So I always say we were the blacks of Fairfield County. <laughs> um, so I luckily went to Catholic school. So it wasn't like a super affluent school. Like it wasn't like going to school at Staples in Westport, Connecticut, where it's a high income level. It was just normal folks, average people. Um, my father was white collar, but not, you know, high, high, high level. My father was a painter, part-time, you know, um, fine artist. And the best thing he said to me and what inspired me especially about this play was I always asked him, his stuff was so good. And I always go, why don't you sell your stuff? And he'd go, just because you're good at something doesn't mean you have to do it. So I always thought to myself, um, I could be good at comedy. I could be good at this play. doesn't mean I have to make money from it. That's not the value that comes from it. It comes from the joy of doing it. So... I think he's the one who taught me to go, okay, I could do this for free and freaking love it. Like a comedy I loved so much that I go, even if I just make it to the $1,000 a week headliner, who cares? Like I would still do it. So that was really cool because just seeing somebody who did art well and didn't care about the dough, that was very good growing up that way. Respect outlast cash. Yeah, yeah. And he also, um, what was good about my folks, they were very, they were, they didn't spoil us at all. Like they were strict. My mother's strict as F, she still is. And she 
was a gangster, man. Just to hear you say strict as F, that's shocking. If you notice, I don't curse off stage anymore because uh, my dad died and I felt with respect to him, I don't curse anymore off stage. I don't uh, do anything ethnic off stage. It's all I kept for the stage now because I just go, my dad loved women who were like Audrey Hepburn and classy. So I go, I'm going to just be classy for my dad. I must have been a shock that first time he came to see you. It was, oh no, he loved that stuff. Because he knew too, he's a smart guy. He knew that was first age. He would stand up and cheer and wave. It was so cute. My mother still does. She loves it. She curses, man. She's crazy. <laughs> but uh, they didn't spoil us at all. Like we got stuff for Christmas. We got stuff for birthday. It wasn't like every day you get what you point at, you know, and we had to be nice, you know, but I think also my role in the family, because I was the middle kid, was more of the mascot because I did a lot of work where I did to, went to this codependency week at a rehab place to find out why I was dating the wrong kind of guys. And um, what rehab facilities are just for that? It's fantastic. It's, no, it's also a drug and alcohol, but I didn't. I've never done drugs or alcohol, just food. And um, what it was, it's a it's a very famous program for codependency where if you find yourself drawn to the wrong types or you're caretaking your parents too much or you're kind of caretaking your kids um, to an unhealthy degree or supporting someone to an un that you find out what in you is making you do that and help you stay away from that person or pull back or detach. It's very 12-steppy. Um, it's called the Karen Foundation in Pennsylvania. It's genius. So they have this one-week codependency program, and um, I just learned from that. But we did this program within that program called the Family Atom, A-T-O-M, where they dissect what role you played in the family. And my role was somewhere between lost child and mascot, which is the lost child is the one who will dis disappear for like two hours in their room drawing or painting or reading or writing stuff. And they just take care of themselves. But they're secure because they know the family's there. Then, but my other role was mascot, which didn't mean funny, which meant more like I could make my mother laugh if she was in a bad mood. I could get her mind off the drama so it could diffuse some energy in the family. So I found out a lot about our dynamic. I was definitely the one who they looked to to sort of lighten things up. Got it. And so take us through the jobs that you had before you somehow stumbled upon stand-up comedy. Yeah. Oh, my first job in high school was at Cousin Ed's Hot Dog House. <laughs> and, of course, I had a crush on the cook and I ended up inviting him to prom. He tried to touch my boob. I wouldn't let him and he never talked to me again. That was my first job. Second job was at Tasha Knoll's Golf Course as a waitress. I started dating the cook there, too, and then he stood me up and we never talked again. Pattern here. And then, uh, you know, I ended up um, in college at Syracuse University. I really love money. I don't like to do work and not get paid. I feel I'm worth something. So I was a newspaper journalism major at Newhouse, and I was like, I want to get paid. I don't want to work on the whack-ass student newspaper. So I found myself a job at the Daily Paper in Syracuse, Syracuse Herald Journal, and I wrote, like, wedding announcements and then reviewed concerts and stuff. So that was my first journalism thing. Used to interview the rock bands, yes, the hair bands. That uh, yeah, came through. I don't like to brag, but you know, Cinderella, Slaughter, all the good ones. And uh, my thing was, I was always into prog rock, I loved like Rush and Jethro Tull. So I interviewed like all my heroes, yes, you know, all these really nerdy rock bands, prog rock bands, and Getty Lee from uh, 
from Rush told me I was the best interviewer because I really researched them. So that's why now when people interview me and they don't know anything about me, I always go, bitch, back then I researched the fuck out of Getty Lee and I didn't have a computer. Like I had to go to the library and use microfilm. I said, call me back when you research me. I thought you were going to be mad that I had eight pages. No, it's honored. It's an honor. But so after journalism, though, I worked at Spy Magazine. I went to Harvard for this six-week program in the summer for publishing. And then I just was like, I'm never going to be Tom Wolf. I'm never going to be a great journalist. I just had fun with it. I said, what do I want to do? And I was working as a uh, proof, not proof, a researcher at um, Rolling Stone. And I said to this guy, Steve Futterman, you know, he was definitely the disheveled Jew in the, in the research department, the one who the papers are always flying all over. And he's like always a mess with no shoes on. I go, Steve, I really want to try to do stand-up comedy. He goes, oh, it's disgusting, self-centered, narcissistic. I go, sounds right for me. But why didn't you want to do it? I don't, something in my gut always told me I was funny. But there had to be something that inspired you. I remember getting my first laugh when I was eight at my Aunt Rose's house for dinner. And it was me, okay, my dad, this is my dad's favorite aunt, she was so great. And I said something, at the time, remember Macy's used to be called Macy's and Bambergers? Yeah. Okay, well I, because I knew I was clever at eight years old, I said something like, are you guys, I think we should go tomorrow to Macy's and Hamburgers. And when you're eight, that's a killer joke. <laughs> so of course it killed at the table. Then guess what, I learned real quick not to milk a joke, because I said it again, <laughs> and they, I didn't even leave room for a callback. You know, respectable callback has like 20 minutes after the first reference. And so then it was like, they're staring at me like crickets, I'm like, note to self, don't milk the joke. But I think since eight, and since that sort of role I had in the family, I was always like, I bet I could do this. You know, I think I'm in trouble because my mm -hmm. kid's first joke uh -oh. when he was 10 was, I'm ambidextrous. That means I can write with my right hand and I masturbate with my left hand. Shut up. He did not. <laughs> I swear to God. Shut the fuck up. I swear to God. Oh, I just cursed. Sorry, Dad. <laughs> um, dude, are you serious? That he didn't even know what that meant? That was his first joke. Did he know yeah. what the M word meant? I didn't want to get into it at the time. Dude, that's My bad father. No, but that sounds like I would like that kid. That kid would be my friend, by the way. He <laughs> actually asks me all the time. He says... Daddy, when can I get back to New York City? I love that city. Aww. I took him here one time, and I always tell him the old Frank Sinatra line, if you can make it that's right. You, know, you can make it anywhere. See, that's what was good about comedy, too, doing it here. Even though it felt crappy every night, I got a lot of love at the strip, I remember. The comic strip yeah. where Eddie Murphy started and Jerry yeah. Seinfeld. And Lucian, always the former manager slash owner. Whenever it would be bombing, he gave me so much self-esteem. He'd be like, go up and do your thing. Like He'd be like, if people weren't doing well. But he, uh, that's good coming up in New York because you do feel like once you make your bones here, you're good. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention some names. Ah. And you tell me anything that comes to mind. Okay. Could be short. Could be a story. Could okay. be one word. Okay. Betty White. Oh, man, I love her so much. She's a too, too, true lady. When we were getting our makeup done at the uh, Pam Anderson roast, she actually, no, William Shatner roast, she didn't even bring her own makeup artist, and she's super rich and famous. So I thought that was very humble and down to earth. Funny as F, showed up for her rehearsal at the roast, which is why she killed, because some of these celebrities don't rehearse with the teleprompter and bomb like the situation in uh, the Donald Trump roast. So I say Betty White die already so i could do that snl uh, old lady spot cat williams oh i don't really know him but i heard he took the roast very hard when he uh 
hosted the Snoop one. No, excuse me, the Flavor Flav one. And um, he took offense that we called him short. And I'm like, have you seen a mirror? <laughs> and also, I think he's a little mentally ill with these guns. I don't know. These black people are crazy. <laughs> <laughs> no one would know more than you. That's right. Seth MacFarlane. Oh, I think he did a great job with the two roasts. I love that show Family Guy. Um, I He can sing. And I called him a big fag, I know, because he sings show tunes. But I think he gets the ladies. Hmm. Sarah Silverman. Oh, my God, I love her. And can I tell you my fondest memory of, of her? And you'll she'll never even remember this. I was doing this show right after the Chevy Chase roast um, for Comedy Central. It was like a stand-up year-end thing. Uh, something by Joel Gallen produced it. And I said a joke, and Sarah was dating Jimmy Kimmel at the time. I came off stage, and she goes, oh, my God, I just called Jimmy and said, you're not going to believe what Lisa Lampanelli just said. And we were both laughing so hard. And I'm like, she knows my name. Like, the fact that I'm an unknown, kind of, and she's who she is, for her to do that, I said, I'll always love her. And beautiful. Can I tell you something about her? I think it's more difficult for a beautiful woman to make it in stand-up because women in the audience feel threatened. Her, Whitney Cummings... This is a hard situation for them because they're like models. I'm sorry. I've seen pictures of Sarah Silverman. She looks better than Audrey Hepburn. And I said, that's a star. That I feel I'm, I was almost blessed with the fact that I was kind of funny looking because I never threatened anyone. Maybe the other fat, ugly chicks in the <laughs> class. No, I'm a gorgeous woman, as you know. BT Comic View. Oh, God. That was insane because I'm sorry not to stereotype, but when you do a black television show... They run late. <laughs> By the time I taped, it was the second. They taped two in a day. Mine started at 1130 at <laughs> night and was supposed to have started at seven. That's all I have to say. Plus, the host mispronounced my name and they had to dub my name in later. But I killed it and got a standing ovation from the 30 people still left there. What can you do? Pamela Anderson. Oh, well, that's one. When you asked about hurting feelings... That's a big story. I've never told anyone about me backing off from jokes. This was like, I almost cried. Well, they're doing the Pam Anderson roast, and I have to go last. And I'm noticing there was a comic who got up who shall remain nameless, but he got cut out of the roast, so it doesn't matter. He did about 10 to 20 jokes about her undercarriage that were so unfunny and blatantly hurtful and I saw that look girls get where they're like kind of being bullied but laughing it off and like that sad smile thing. And I've heard like blinking too hard like it might have been tears. And I'm looking at her and I'm like the fat chick. So I'm like all sensitive. So I'm looking at her going, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. So he gets off and we go to commercial and Tommy Lee says to her, like he mouths, are you OK? And she like shakes it off and she's like. Mm-hmm. Yep. I'll never get a date again, I guess. And I knew she was really hurt. I was so pissed. I go through my script. I crossed out every Pam Anderson joke about boobs, who were, or her undercarriage. And I did two jokes about her that were very mild. And I got the rest of them all back. And I felt like that was my thing of where I can sense if you're upset and I go, I jump off you. So this is an answer to your other question. I'm not a hurtful person. I'm a sweetheart <laughs> of a gal. But I felt she was hurt, so I, 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 I thought I helped her out a little bit. Awesome. Jeffrey Ross. I love him. Big, ugly Jew. <laughs> but, no, one, no, one thing about Jeff, biggest heart in the world. And, you know, he, he just, 
he always kills at those roasts and he always makes me very nervous because he goes like about as far as you can go like I do and I always worry about that and I'm like but they always love him but god he's ugly <laughs> I mean he is the most unfuckable he makes Dave Attell look appealing but he gets all the beautiful women and I'm still fucking fatties forget about it no he's he's terrific and honestly biggest heart he reminds me a lot of Rich Voss you know Rich Voss never had the level of success he probably wanted but boy, that's a guy who, if you hurt, if he hurt your feelings, he would sense it and come up and apologize. And he's done that to me many times. And he always says, look, if I hurt you, I'm sorry. <laughs> and I always said on his movie, I said, you're vulnerable. And it's that lisp. That's why people love you because, and he knows it. He can use that to make people know he's not perfect. And I go, that's a mensch right there. So Rich Voss and Jeff Ross always have a nice place in my heart. First moment you felt vulnerable. In my whole life? Well, I remember my sister, that little bitch, <laughs> when I was about eight, maybe, no, probably six, I had a teddy bear who I loved, and I was pissed off that my mother was mad at us about something, and I was outside with my sister, and you know how you think you could team with your sister and brother? Well, I'm standing there, and I said to my teddy bear in front of my sister, I go, Come on, Teddy. Mommy doesn't love us anymore. Do you know my C word of a sister goes in and says, Mommy, Lisa said you didn't love her anymore. And I get yelled at for saying it. So I'm like, all right, you know what? Now I can't trust neither of you still. But I have that bear still. <laughs> Whitney Cummings. Oh, I love her. Whitney put me on her sitcom. Let me tell you something about my acting back then. Terrible. And let me also tell you another thing. I couldn't memorize for crap. She let me have a, a uh, what's that thing that you hold, a clipboard, because I was coming into the house to do an inspection. So she let me write my lines on there so I could look down like Estelle Getty in Golden Girls, where she wrote the, the, her lines on the bananas. Let me tell you this. This Whitney Cummings gave me a shot. That's so not Amy Schumer, same thing. They both put me on their shows, and I go, that's a real lady. Isn't that a mensch, too? Absolutely. I think these younger women comics care about other women. And even, you know, other men who haven't made it yet, they really try to help you. And I'm not ever going to be the biggest star. I'm never going to be the funniest, the prettiest, the skinniest. But the nice people end up liking me and helping me. Howard Stern. Oh, my hero, my personal Lord and Savior. Because if I hadn't appeared on his show, he's like the Johnny Carson of uh, he back when I did it, when I started in the right after the Chevy Chase roast. And I've continued up until a couple of weeks ago being on his show. When he used to let you stay for the news, you knew you made it like when Carson <laughs> asked you to come over and sit on the couch, which was a dick move on Carson's part anyway. You know, he just had to have power. But anyway, um, Stern, there's been no bigger gentleman in my life. And I always help out on the North Shore Animal League Gala. I hosted it last year. I always do the red carpet and publicity and stuff. This guy cares and he's evolved. Four times therapy a week, he's become a real man. And I go, if he can work on himself, I can too. Your surgery. Oh, my God. Thank you, God. I love it. Uh, after the first two weeks of nothing but clear liquids, it's heaven. Our audience don't know the process. So in oh, your mind. Well, what it is, it's a surgery, a weight loss surgery called the gastric sleeve surgery. Why do you decide to do it? What happens? Sick of being the fat chick. Sick of being that chick who couldn't handle their issues and was depressed all the time. So I said, I bet if I take the fat, the physical fat out of the equation and work on the insides, I can have a do-over and 
really figure out how to eat like a person should in their life. So you weighed... 248. 248 at your highest point. Yep, yep. So you have the consultation. How much does the surgery cost? Well, if you... My doctor is great because he takes most insurances. So Jimmy Big Balls... His surgery is completely paid for by insurance. Jimmy Big Balls? My ex-husband. Was that because of physical or mental? What, the balls? Yes. Oh, the balls are just huge. They're horrible. That's the nickname Howard Stern gave him was Jimmy Big Balls because his balls were, Barry, I'm not lying to you. They are the size, I would say like this, like one and a half of these. The size of a microphone cup. Really? Like a big mic. Not the Gene Rayburn skinny in the (laughs) 70s match game one like this. But Jimmy's great. But he got the surgery. It was about, you know, free. But mine, I wanted to pay for it myself and not pay, not wait the six months you're supposed to wait for. And I paid like 14 grand. It's going up a little, but that's reasonable for somebody who really has an issue. So you get the operation. Nope, they don't do anything. They don't insert anything. What happens? They go in laparoscopically, five little holes. Literally, say this is your stomach, a microphone. Cut out 85% of it. No rerouting, no restructuring. Basically, your stomach's small again. Eat smaller portions. For the rest of your life, if you don't stretch it out like a lunatic, you have to eat very small portions the rest of your life. So when you got out of the hospital, you probably lost about 20 pounds anyway. Right. The first week I lost 8 pounds because you can only have clear liquids. But then in 9 months, I'd lost 100. Then a couple more months, I lost the additional 7 so, yeah, you lose fast, and then you have to keep it off. That's the whole trick that nobody remembers. But I used it as a do-over and go, let's pretend I'm 19 again with this weight problem like I got in high school. Now let's eat like ha- like you handle yourself emotionally other ways by feeling. So you feeling. can get heavy again yep. even though you have the sleeve. Yep, and I'm not going to. I refuse because I am like an adult if I want to keep in shape, I got to exercise. I can't eat my feelings. I can't, you know, go to food if I'm unhappy or sad or whatever. And that's hard, dude. I don't have any other coping me- mechanism. I don't drink. I don't have, I've never done a drug except pot once. i not having sex with men. I don't have boyfriends. I'm like, where do I go with my emotions? I have to feel them. Do you know how hard that is every day? I'm not complaining. I'm like, thank God I'm doing it. But it blows. You got to cry a lot and talk things out. That's why I wrote a freaking play to get it all out there. <laughs> Seriously, I was like, that's all I can do is put it out there every night. Wow. Last one, Donald Trump. Oh, my God, Donald Trump. Well, that's what li- my favorite line in my whole play, I think, is that when I had my weight loss surgery, my hair got thin and fell out because that's what happens. I go, I look in the drain every morning and see Donald Trump's nutsack. <laughs> <laughs> but Trump's like mental. Like Trump, I said on the radio the other day that Trump was why I got the surgery because during the Celebrity Apprentice, he complimented every woman except me. And I was like, I, you know, come on, throw me a bone. I'm a woman. <laughs> but honestly... He's become such a crazy person, but he was always nice to me. So I'm like always on the fence. So I usually just make fun of him a lot in my show and figure I don't really talk trash politically, but he's a good sport. Let's leave it at that, that I've roasted him twice, once for Comedy Central, once for the Friars, has always been a good sport. And I don't think we'll ever be really true friends, but I think I might vote who knows how in the coming election (laughs) i guess you could probably guess hey everybody let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success 
It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Last questions. Your greatest holy shit moment, something that might be a highlight chapter of a book you write or something in your life that would blow people the fuck away. I don't think this will blow anyone away, but it blew me away. Um, I want, I was booked to work the Sacramento Punchline, which is a very respected club, but it's still just a club, one weekend, and I show up on the Wednesday, and they say, can we add a third show Friday, a fourth show Saturday, and a second show Sunday? I'm like, why? They go, because you're sold out. And I go, why? And they go, we don't know. <laughs> and I go, what's going on? I call my manager, and she goes, oh, my God, the Pam Anderson roast aired and now everybody knows who you are because everyone watched that roast to see how nutty Courtney Love acted during that roast so to walk into a club thinking oh we'll have 30 on Wednesday we'll probably have 40 people on Thursday and have it completely sold out and add three shows I was like I made it so that to me was a holy crap moment because I'm like I can parlay this into bigger things and then I ended up in you know big theaters all the time so, and also my funnest moment ever was on, when I did Radio City, I had a Rockette who coached me how to dance for six months so that me and my niece, who's a dancer and her friend could do like a funny dance on the show. And it felt so good. It's like heartfelt to me. Anything, any good memory I have has to do with family. It just has to do with them. Awesome. Your proudest moment in show business. Oh, in show business? Probably hearing when people say, I got the surgery because of you and now I'm down a hundred pounds or, Oh, I, um, I was crying all through your play or even during standup when they say, I actually had a really nice moment where a woman said to me, you're the first time I've laughed in five years since my son died and he was five and she was crying. That was really proud. That was, that's years ago. That's like 20 years ago and I still remember it. So it must've been pretty big to me. So those are the kind of things it's never about, money or power or anything like i was nominated for a grammy twice the only reason i care is because i took my niece and nephew this year and we dressed we had the tailor make us outfits from my dad's suits and we all looked so cute and like so we sort of had my dad with me those are the things i like as always this has been industry standard with me barry katz and if you like the show tell all your friends and if you don't like the show tell all your friends you get out the money
drive that fancy car. All the people love you. Cause you're going far. Life is for the dreamers. They have all to gain. It's never quite over. So it all feels the same. You pick your own poison. Dig your own grave. Down in the valley. A fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.